Thank you so much. Good morning. You know, last week we had the privilege opportunity to look at the background to the passage that we're considering today. And we were looking at a situation where God had established a very clear, unmistakable, and exclusive promise. And that promise is the promise that leads towards Jesus Christ as our Lord and as our Savior. What I want to do is to build off of last week. Last week gave the foundation for what we're considering today. And so if you didn't have a chance to study that last week, of course, we've got that online for you. But today I'd like you to now take your Bibles, and again, we're turning to Galatians chapter 4. We're now in verse 21 through 31. We're going to be looking at what some have said, one of the harder passages to understand that Paul has ever written. That's why we covered what we did last week. And what we want to do is to do our very best to interpret this accurately and to apply this effectively in a way that will honor and glorify God's name. So we're making our way now to this fourth chapter. And in this fourth chapter of the book of Galatians, you and I are going to see how God's strategic promise is applied to your life and to my life. We're in verse 21. You and I are told, tell me, You who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way. But his son by the free woman was born as the result of the promise. These things may be taken figuratively, for the women present represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, O barren woman, who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have had no labor pains, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now, you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does the Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son. For the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Now, there's a lot there. And obviously, what Paul is doing is he's assuming a certain knowledge of your Old Testament, which is what we tried to delve into last week to lay the foundation for what we're looking at today. But once we've got this structure in place, it's going to open up, I think, our eyes to grace in a way in which perhaps we've never fully appreciated, valued, or even considered before. But we're going to start, of course, by 
by looking to our Lord in prayer. Our fathers, we're coming before you. We do so knowing that all Scripture is inspired by you. It's God-breathed. Around us is a myriad of opinions on why the world is in the condition that's in and what the solutions are, not only globally, but personally. And then comes Jesus. Steps into our lives and reminds us of his death, his resurrection. We have the assurance of his return. And if we're born again, we have the certainty of being able to be with you forever. And that brings such encouragement to our hearts and it deepens our faith. In these morning services, Father, what we want to do is to pull together all of the issues of life and lay them under the cross of Jesus Christ. And I'm sure for each one here, there are a wide range of issues that are going to be even competing for our attention as we look into your word together this morning. But you are the God worthy of attention. What we want to do now is, via your word, to direct our thoughts to you. And so, Father, what we're doing now in these moments ahead is calling upon you. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wheels. Because again, Father, we've come here to see Jesus. Him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've spent enough time now in your devotions in Galatians 3 and 4, there is a word that appears and reappears and reappears. And it's the word promise. So critical is that word to our understanding of grace that immediately what comes to my mind is a tremendous scene that I've referenced every now and then from that great classic, Pilgrim's Progress. Christian has left the main road like so many people in this world. He has opted for another path. It looks easier on the onset, but it's harder in the long run, which is so typical of life itself. He finds himself all of a sudden in a territory which is known as giant despair. And he's captured and he's thrown into imprisonment where he's even thinking suicidal thoughts. With him is his companion, Hope. And Hope reminds Christian of previous victories that he's experienced in life, which is always a spiritual discipline to be able to counter whatever depressive thoughts are are making their way into into your mind at this moment. 
Now, they're praying. As they are praying about midnight, all of a sudden, half amazed, Christian seems to break out in this passionate speech. What a fool am I to think that I am lying here in this, this prison when I may as well be at liberty. I have a key in my pocket called promise that will, I am persuaded, open any lock in this doubting prison. Hope turns to him and says, that is good news, brother. Good news. Pull it out and try it. And he tries it. And the prison gates flew open. Now what Paul is doing at this point is that he is challenging the Galatians that you are children of promise. Throughout the third chapter, again and again and again, he's used this word to show how God has been the source of grace through his promise. In chapter 3, verse 14, it speaks of the promise of the Spirit. In verse 16, where the promise is spoken to Abraham to a seed, meaning one person who is Christ. In verse 21, he speaks of the promises of God. In chapter 3, we find these things. And then that rich summary toward the end, in verse 29 of that third chapter, that all who belong to Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, are part of Abraham's seed and is with Isaac, and now he's talking about the promised children. The promised children. If you're born again, you are part of the family of faith, a children of God's promise. What I want to do now is to take this key, the key that Bunyan calls promise, And we're going to use it to begin to unlock whatever it is that you may find yourself personally imprisoned, ensnared, held captive. And watch how by God's grace these verses are meant to set us free from any legalism that seems to restrict our movements in life. There are three steps to Paul's arguments here that he uses now to get our attention to show us the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ, that we are saved not on the basis of human works, which is bondage, but on the grace that is found in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and his finished work, which is freedom. Now, the first stage, the first step is in verse 21 through 23, And we're going to phrase it like this. Number one, God's gracious promise has been established historically. Notice how it begins. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? Question mark. The Judaizers have misinterpreted and misapplied God's law, turning it into a means of salvation rather than a revealer of our sinful 
condition. And so now, Paul enters into their thinking and uses their tools to uh, basically construct his thought process of grace. So he now goes back historically. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. Well, we need a diagram, don't we, to be able to map this out as to what's happening here. So let's have that appear on the screen. And there's Abraham. Now, let's remind ourselves very briefly of what we considered last week in summary form. In Genesis 16, Abram and Sarai at this point have been without child. Oh, they've got a promise. But they don't have a child. Sarai now wants to help God out fulfill his promise. The sinful one wants to help out the sinless one. She looks at her husband, Abram. Now in the Middle East, hospitality is crucial, critical, and normative. And Abram and Sarai most likely would have been very hospitable, particularly because they were located in a setting of a natural trade route. People coming and going. Abram's name means literally exalted father. So I can imagine our visitors appearing at their tent and introducing themselves and asking, well, now, what's your name? And he's 75 years old. His wife, Sarah, she left Ur of the Chaldees around 65, and he says, exalted father, pleased to meet you. And they said, and where are your children? I, I don't have any children yet. Now, they're looking at this elderly man and this woman who is beyond childbearing years, and he's calling himself Exalted Father. Now, Sarai wants Abram to become an Exalted Father. So she's got a plan, and as that plan was unhatched, as we saw last week, Her plan was to produce a surrogate mother. If I can't produce a natural child, I will bring a surrogate mother into this equation. As we began to develop the thinking there, what we saw was that when our faith in God's promise is weak, we seek to do God's will our way according to our time. The clock is ticking, and it seems as though, in hockey terms, the third period has come to an end. By the way, yesterday morning, looking forward to perhaps a repeat of that illustration that we spoke of last week, of Lake Placid, 1980, uh, coffee in hand before I delved into my work, I, I turned on the hockey game between the U.S. and Russia. And lo and behold, at the end of the third period, it was tied up again. And went into overtime, and the U.S. won in a shootout. Well, now, Sarai's saying, man, I'm in overtime here. God has made a promise. I'm helping God deliver. Maybe not physically, but figuratively. 
via Hagar. See what she's doing. When our faith in God's promise is weak, we seek to do God's will our way according to our time. And so Hagar, Hagar brings a baby into this world. His name is Ishmael, which means God hears. Now look very carefully at the diagram here. Hagar was the slave woman. She was the surrogate, and Sarai brought Hagar to Abram, and Ishmael is born. God hears. Sounds very religious, doesn't it? But just because something sounds religious does not mean that that something that sounds religious is true and right. Now, Paul is saying here, look, it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, the other by the free woman. Now, notice the free woman. Her name is Sarah. She is the free woman, and her son, born subsequently, his name is Isaac, which means laughter. And eventually when Sarah is able to laugh, she's part of the laughter of the redeemed. It is the pure laughter of grace of being able to say that God fulfills his promise, and the promise is the key that unlocks the dilemma of all of humanity at this point. So now you've got a dilemma on your hands. You've got a contrast on your hands that basically represents the challenge of this world today. There is the Hagar, the Ishmael line. It is highly natural. This child was produced naturally. But you see, what God did was that he took Sarai beyond the natural childbearing years and then brought this promised child into the world so that what we see here on the other side is what we will call the promise line. That's the red line that eventually leads to Jesus. Notice here, this is an exclusive promise. Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the exclusive promise. This world is filled with spiritual additives. People want to add to God's plan. They want to mix the Hagar with the Sarah. They want to level this out and and bring Isaac and Ishmael together. It's all part of the plan, so to speak. But what God is saying is that he has an exclusive plan. Now, when Sarah recognizes this, and it takes a while for the Sarahs of this world to begin to understand these things, then what she came to grips with is that when our faith in God's promise is strong, we trust God to do his will, his way, In his time, Ishmael was born into slavery. Isaac was born into freedom. 
Ishmael was born naturally. God utilized the barren womb, post-menopause, so to speak. And then he operates supernaturally. And if you look very carefully at the phrasing here in 23, his son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way. But his son by the free woman was born as the result of what? A promise. So there are those people traveling along, stop at Abram's tent. He doesn't have a multitude at this point. Abraham, the father of a multitude, but what he has is the promise. And it's the promise that basically unlocks the dilemma door of this world. Notice that one involves enslavement. The other involves freedom. So I got up early again, so to speak, and uh, I, I figured before, before we get too far into the day, I want to make sure that I'm speeding what's happening in the Olympics. So I turned on yesterday morning the Russian-U.S. game, and there was President Putin in the stands, and my mind begins to move back over over some of the stories of the past, because he used to be a KGB agent, of course, during the days of the old Soviet Union and communism. Then my mind went back to a story that I rifled through in my files to make sure I got down right for this morning. Of a man during the days, so to speak, of the Soviet Union, a character in Moscow that people refer to as Rabinovich, it's the subject of hundreds of stories that circulated cautiously among the people during those days behind the Iron Curtain. Now, in one of these stories, Rabinovich leaves Moscow for a trip through Europe. And he sends back postcards from ten successive cities he visits. Greetings from a free Warsaw. Greetings from a free Prague. Greetings from a free Budapest. But finally he reaches Paris, which was outside communism, outside the Iron Curtain, and the last card comes with this penciled note. Greetings from a free Rabinovich. Do you hear what Paul is saying at this point? Do you see what Paul is now doing at this point? He's saying the restrictionists, the legalists, need to look back historically. Why, we don't refer to ourselves in Judaism as the sons of Moses, do we? We refer to ourselves as the sons of Abraham, so let's go back to Abraham and consider the promise that was delivered to him at this point and ponder now when we try to do God's will our way This is what happens. Conflict. And there's Hagar, which represents enslavement. And there's Ishmael, which sounds extremely religious, God hears. On the other hand, here's the red line. Let's take the red line here that leads ultimately to Jesus. Here's Sarah. In contrast to Hagar, she's a free woman. 
Also in contrast to Hagar, she bores, bears a child, not naturally, but supernaturally, according to promise, you see. And now here's Bunyan, who pens these thoughts in his own imprisonment. And we've got this key called promise, and it unlocks this door in the dungeon of despair. And you've got a key likewise that unlocks this kind of door if you find yourself incarcerated, trapped, conflicted by life, you see. So now do you see the contrast unfolding here? The contrast of slavery on one side versus freedom on the other. The contrast between the ordinary birth on one side versus the promised birth on the other. And now you and I begin to process this. God's gracious promise has been established historically. The Judaizers like to start with Moses, though they refer themselves as sons of Abraham. And Paul is saying, let's be consistent here. In which case, I'll go back to Abraham and begin to argue my point historically to show you where true freedom is found in the gracious promise of God that leads ultimately toward Jesus Christ. An exclusive promise that points to the ultimate fulfillment, the one who comes through the line of Abraham and then Isaac. But now as you and I have worked this through, and you and I see the contrast between slavery and freedom, ordinary birth and promised birth, We're now ready for the second step in his line of reasoning. Look at verse 24. These things, he now says, may be written figuratively. For the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. We'll camp there for a minute. Let's look now at this this second step in his line of reasoning. He begins historically. But once he has established his historical foundation, which we did last week, Here's his second step. God's gracious promise, secondly, can be explained allegorically. Look at verse 24. Don't let that throw us. These things may be taken figuratively, or in some of the translations here, allegorically. That does not mean that Paul interprets Genesis allegorically. I was leaning forward a few weeks back. My wife had recorded Bill O'Reilly for me, and he, he got his bachelor's degree in history, and, of course, he got a master's from Harvard. And he was, being, he was involved in a conversation with one of his guests, and he was talking about how he interprets the opening chapters of Genesis allegorically. And I'm leaning forward because I respect a lot of his opinions, and I'm saying, no, no. Wish I could get on the program reason with you at this point. Paul begins historically, but notice what he is doing here. He is not interpreting Genesis allegorically. He is communicating with the audience allegorically. 
He starts with the text historically and then moves to the audience. Just like any teacher begins with the text and then moves to the audience. You don't start with the audience and then get to the text. He starts with the text and moves to the audience. He starts with, it is written, just like Billy Graham in his crusades would begin, the Bible says. But he interprets not only the Bible well, he also interprets the world well. And he moves from Scripture to audience, you see. Notice this is Paul's approach. He doesn't start culturally. He starts historically. He starts scripturally. It is written. And he knows his stuff. And so he begins his argument historically, but now he looks at the people and he begins to communicate truths allegorically, figuratively at this point. He begins to map something out for us. And we've got to see how he maps it out. So now look at 24 through 27, and we've got a map in front of us, don't we? Let's begin to begin to process this together. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This, he says, is Hagar. Now, the Hagar Ishmael line is highly religious. And he's saying, for the sake of my argument now that has a historical base, but now we're using an allegorical uh, line of reasoning, let's consider Mount Sinai. The Judaizers turned to Mount Sinai, even though they like to call themselves not sons of Moses, but sons of Abraham. I want to be consistent, he's saying. But for the sake, you Judaizers, of your value system, I want to point out to you that before the law was delivered in Exodus 20, grace was communicated. God said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Grace appeared before the law. Abraham appeared before Moses, you know. The promise appeared before the law. But here now, he's saying, for those that want to move back into legalism and argue that salvation is by works, you misinterpreted and misapplied Sinai. Look, on the other hand, at the Sarah Isaac, the red line. And notice that in contrast to Mount Sinai, which is below, here is Jerusalem which is above. And look very carefully at the wording here, which Paul uses. Where in verse 26 he says, but the Jerusalem that is above is free. She is our mother. And mothers are those, of course, that produce birth. And then our mind goes back to a, a testimony of the great evangelist George Whitfield. He had been raised in legalism. And he was trying to gain acceptance before God. He said, I prayed many times a day, received the sacrament consistently, fasted myself almost to death all 40 days of Lent, and yet felt no closer to God. Yet I knew no more than I needed to be born again. Born from above. Born as a new creation in Christ Jesus than if I never was born at all. Mr. Charles Wesley put the Bible in my hand 
and showed me that God has established that I must be born from above or be lost. Now what you and I begin to see here throughout the world is that there's this tremendous tension between allegorically, figuratively, Sinai people and Jerusalem above type people. That from below and that from above. But those that are of the Sinai crowd, it results in bondage. And so now you see people throughout this world that are attempting to gain acceptance from God based upon their efforts, rather than upon Christ's work. And we find that Jesus Christ comes along and says that the truth shall set you free which resonates in the hearts and in the minds and even from our lips when we say, my chains are gone, I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace. Take the red line here, you see. Now, Once you and I begin to reason this way, we realize that we've got a world in contrast, and that's why we've got a world in conflict. On one hand, there is the lower level, the Hagar-Ishmael approach. God's will, our way, our time. Mount Sinai leading to bondage. But the red line is the Sarah Isaac approach. That's the promise line. It's Jerusalem above where we are born from above which is another translation of the phrase born again, which results, you see, which results in freedom. You know, the United States Capitol Dome in Washington, there's this statue called Freedom Lady. Almost 20 feet high. Her face is framed by a crest of stars. shoot of stars, stripes in her left hand came to the U.S. from Rome during a fierce storm. Captain ordered some cargo thrown overboard. Sailors wanted to include the heavy statue, but we're told the captain refused, shouting above the wind, no, we'll flounder before we throw freedom away. Paul is looking at heavy-hearted, weighed down Galatian type people. And he's saying, you're throwing freedom away. You're getting so bound up in rules and regulations that go far beyond what the Scriptures would teach. It's the truth that sets you free. He contrasts Sinai with Jerusalem above in 24 through 26. He contrasts bondage with freedom in verse 25 through 26. And your conclusion is that he contrasts salvation by works with salvation by grace as a result. You see, these people, and it's the story of all the religion in this world, attempt to gain acceptance based upon the little word D-O. But the believer has gained acceptance based upon Christ's work, D-O-N-E. Two more letters added. Do versus done. Works versus grace. 
bondage versus freedom. Zionite versus Jerusalem above, taking it back to the Hagar Ishmael versus Sarah Isaac. And yet, here's what's interesting about all that's happening in the Middle East and beyond. They've got the same father, Abraham. Do you see the dilemma out there? And the dilemma worldwide as to why all this looks so confusing to the press when it tries to pass what's taking place. Now, once you and I have reasoned Paul's approach through, it's been established historically, 21 through 23, can be explained allegorically in verse 24 through 27. Then here's his third step. It's always what's necessary. That God's gracious promise must be applied personally. Look at 28 through 31. He's looking at Christians here. Not unbelievers. Christians. Now you brothers, like Isaac, not like Ishmael, like Isaac, our children of promise. And the Galatians might say, but I'm a Gentile. Not a Jew. This was the huge challenge that Jesus Christ himself faced in John chapter 8. When he said, then you'll know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And they answered him, we're Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? And then they added, Abraham is our father. And what Paul is now saying is that, yes, he is their their physical father. But they've got to bear in mind that though they are his physical heirs, they are not his spiritual heirs. And now Paul gasps his gaze on these Gentiles and says, you are children of the promise. You are Abraham's descendants. Children of promise at that time, the son born in the ordinary way, persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. Which means that that line of Hagar Ishmael was the line of the flesh, while the line of of Sarah Isaac was the line of the Spirit. Long before Pentecost, by the way. You look at that and you realize then that Ishmael, Hagar's son, and Isaac, Sarah's son, were half-brothers. Ishmael was persecuting Isaac in Genesis 21. And so much of the global conflict today when, when newscasters are saying religious wars and roll their eyes back, should look very carefully at this passage because this is a religious war. It is the legalist persecuting that who is born of the Spirit. The flesh versus the Spirit. So much of religious wars throughout history have been the war of the half-brothers. Of Ishmael versus Isaac. Flesh versus Spirit. But how do you explain this? Yet this is exactly what is taking place in the world even today. So this leads then to the first of two aspects of how you apply this personally 
that number one, the children of promise must expect persecution. It's happening even now throughout the world where the flesh, the line of the flesh, persecutes the line of the Spirit. Where that of Ishmael persecutes, allegorically speaking, the line of Isaac. And now you're making sense of what's happening. But it doesn't end there. In verse 30, he says something that makes our eyes initially tense. Question. What does the Scripture say? It's a good question we should continuously be asking. We lean forward, and all of a sudden, dramatically, Paul writes, get rid of the slave woman and her son. What does he mean by that? In the Genesis 21 account, Abraham had to remove Hagar and Ishmael from the family because Ishmael was persecuting and threatening the line of Isaac. Allegorically speaking, what Paul is saying here is get rid of legalism. Get rid of the argument of salvation by works. Because the religionism of salvation by works will persecute and attempt to annihilate that which is salvation by grace. Even in Jerusalem, Jesus found this conflict is what was driving him toward that cross where those who were driven by works were religionists but of the flesh. And Jesus all along is saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And he had said previously, it's the truth that sets you free to those who claim to be the descendants of Abraham. You see how this fits together? Wow. But it leads us to this second aspect as we apply personally. It's the children of promise that will receive the inheritance. There in the midst of it all, he says, get rid of the legalism, so to speak. Get rid of the salvation by works arguments when he says, get rid of the slave woman and her son. For the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance. In other words, salvation by works does not share in the inheritance. We live in a world that's involved in additives. Just as in Paul's day, they wanted to add circumcision to grace. So today, people want to add They want additives to what it is the Scriptures have taught. But it is grace alone, faith alone, Scripture alone. They'll never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Sarah begets Isaac, of whom eventually comes Jacob, which leads ultimately to Jesus, you see who said that it's the truth that sets you free. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. What a fool am I to be lying here in this, in, in this jail when I may as well be at liberty. I have a key called promise that will, I am persuaded, open any 
lock in this setting, hope says to him, it's good news. Gospel. And then says, pluck it out and try it. And the prison gates flew open. And the truth sets you free. Let's stand together. We're awed at the way in which Paul is willing to reason things out. He doesn't start allegorically. He starts historically. But he knows his audience and knew that they could reason allegorically and so he moves to that point before he gets personal, applies personally. We need to do the same when we share good news with people. Father, if there's anyone here who has not embraced the purity and the exclusivity of grace, I pray that they'll wrap their arms around this and apply it in every way, shape, or form to the way in which they relate to their husband or their wife, the way they relate to their children or grandchildren, the way they relate to those around them and share the good news of Jesus. But ultimately we have to focus upon the one who is the ultimate fulfillment of the exclusive promise, Jesus himself. And so we praise you and we thank you, Father, for the red line that gets us to the cross, the one who died for our sins. And for this, Father, we give you all the praise, all of it, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.